I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to the Purpose Made podcast. We are here to inspire positive change in our post-pandemic global society. Talking to business leaders around the globe, discussing the highs, lows and challenges they've experienced. Our hosts, Neil Bestford and Peter Bell, created Purpose Made in 2021 during the height of the pandemic, combining their passion for people, culture and transformational change. They sit down with business leaders and ask, what does the future look like? Don't forget to click subscribe to hear all the latest news and views on our changed global society. So welcome back to the Purpose Made podcast. Who's on today's episode, Pete? So today we're excited to be joined by Peter Neal and Andrew Marsh from the Experience Bank Group. The Experience Bank was founded on the 31st of May 2020 and is primarily focused on supporting Northeast small and medium-sized enterprises and charities, essentially to help them build out effective boards and optimize performance. Some of our listeners may have also had the pleasure of speaking with either Andrew or Peter via the Experience Bank group or potentially through the numerous peer support groups they also chair. Andrew, for example, is a chair of the Vistage Peer Group for execs, whilst Peter also chairs groups for non-execs, ultimately sharing their experience, insight and wisdom to help optimise performance. Really looking forward to today. They've both got fantastic experience. It'd be great to hear their insight. Yeah, because they they started around the same time, kind of around the start of the pandemic last year. Peter particularly was talking about the board efficacy so making sure that kind of board level the, the creating an effective board and that's definitely his kind of his drive and passion so um without further ado let's um crack on with this week's episode bit of background on me then so i suppose i'm an adopted geordie having moved up here to do a degree that was completely useless to me in the end at newcastle university i did end up marrying a geordie and having a couple of geordie kids and have been here for Oh, 30 years. It, yeah, yeah, it will be. Maybe a bit longer. I did start out as an engineer, but about 25 years ago, an entrepreneur called Nigel Wright tapped me on the shoulder, and I ended up joining his, at the time, quite fledgling recruitment business in Newcastle, which was called Nigel Wright Consultancy. But I was employee number 11 when I joined And when I left 17 years later, just after he sold to private equity, we were employing 130-odd people, had offices throughout Europe. Nigel repositioned the business to be a a consumer specialist recruiter globally. 
very cleverly to uh, position itself for himself for an exit uh, and ultimately private equity bought it off him. I then popped out of Nigel Wright and took a business idea to UNW, accountancy firm up here, accountants and business advisors, who had quite an active corporate finance team, which is really what I was interested in. I knocked on their door. Uh, they knew me because they'd advised Nigel on his exit. And uh, that's when the idea of strategic talent as a service line, an additional service line for UNW came to be. So for a long time now, I've primarily focused on helping SMEs and charities find execs and non-execs. And that, I felt, would sit nicely alongside everything else UNW did as a trusted advisor. And it worked quite well for a few years until the pandemic came along and also the ICAW got a bit nervous about the potential conflict of interest. So popped out of that a year ago. In fact, the Experience Bank Group was founded a year ago on the 31st of May. So just finished our first year. Congratulations. Thank you. And it's been fun, actually. I wish I'd done it sooner. But the Experience Bank Group, and I'm sure Andrew will elaborate on what he does for the group, but its primary purpose is to support Northeast-based SMEs and charities build brilliant boards. And of course, to have a brilliant board, you don't just need the people, you need to be very effective as a team and have the right governance standards, etc. And we, we, we primarily are interested in that and helping companies, enterprises have really effective, optimum performing boards because that's a very good thing to have. That's my story in a nutshell. I rely entirely on the expertise of people like Andrew, of course, who's actually been there and done it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, uh, you have the skill of finding the right person, though, Peter. That's the thing. I, I do, I do, I do, I do walk the talk as well. I am a non-exec myself and a business advisor, but I, it's, it's a constant learning, though, isn't it? It is a constant learning. Yeah. Well, my history is a little less glamorous than Peter's. I didn't come to the northeast for university I actually uh, never went to university I, I actually got all of my qualifications whilst working so all my all my degrees all my charterships all of my MBAs etc was all whilst working never really got the academic side but I'm from St Helens uh, originally so I'm a Lancashire lad when I was born it was Lancashire it's now Merseyside under the economic boundaries so that's why we, we, we still call it the way that we do but I actually ended up in the northeast for two reasons. One was to play cricket. Um, I got a cricket contract over here and then very quickly worked out I wasn't very good. And then the second reason uh, was actually I met a girl from a place called Walker in, in the northeast on an 1830s holiday. So <laughs> that's how I ended up in the And uh, I've never looked back, to be honest. But, but I put my career into five stages. Okay, I don't know what stage six looks like yet. But currently, I'm growing lots of vegetables and doing the good life. So that could be stage six. But stage one uh, was I started life in procurement supply, and I specialized in corporate and commercial law within that. So I was outsourcing lots of things for clients that didn't really want to have the item. So back office operations, call centers. I was involved with the rail privatization uh, activities and uh, numerous other things. That's stage one, if you like, the apprenticeship years. I then moved to the dark side in stage two. I became a sales guy. 
So on stage one, I was the procurement fella doing the gatekeeper. Now I'm the sales guy trying to sell everything. And that was predominantly in the rail, engineering, manufacturing, and IT sectors. And then stage three came along and it went even darker. I became a business consultant for KPMG <laughs> and, uh, and was in their business transformation practice, uh, became sales director for Atos. Um, Atos bought KPMG when audit houses couldn't have a business consulting arm for the first time around. And then stage four came along because I did a strategic review for Atos, um, who bought KPMG on something called Atos Worldline. And Atos Worldline in the UK was about 10 million quid cottage industry in the bottom of somebody's balance sheet in a very, very large organization. But in Europe, it was worth 1.2 billion. So a massive disparity. And I did a strategic review. And therein lies stage four, which then brought me my first chief exec's job. And then for the next 20 years, I ran what's called BPO business, business process outsourcing. So I was delivering back to clients, services and operations that they didn't feel core or I could deliver back as a more economic value. So payroll, call centers, uh, operations like that. So clients included likes of Shell, the UK government, NHS, Kraft, to name a few, NSNI, lots of different Vodafone, lots of different firms over those years. So lots of acquisitions. And now stage five. Uh, And stage five, I I spend my time uh, working with businesses and chief execs, predominantly in the Northeast, but I do work across the UK and Europe still, just to basically improve their business performance, improve their own personal lives in doing it. So I do that uh, through interim work. So I get called up by equity houses or wherever else to come in and turn something around. Or I do it through Vistage. So I share Vistage groups. Um, Vistage is the world's largest chief execs organization. And I I chair a number of peer groups uh, for them. Through that, I also share some peer groups with Peter for non-execs who want to improve their skill set and get get wider value. And in in the board in the my work with the experience bank group is I do the board effectiveness work. So I I come in and take a look at what's going on in the organisations and work with them to try and find better ways or more efficient and more effective ways to drive board performance. Uh, and then the final thing that I do is that I'm a bit of a serial non-exec director. So I've got a number of non-exec positions ranging from a PLC at the big corporate end or aspiring PLC, family businesses, corporates, PE, VC uh, backed businesses, all the way down to some early startups as well. So a big range of the plethora. So that's the career that I'm in now. As I say, that's stage five, stage six, no idea, probably the good life. <laughs> can you can you see the interesting contrast there? See, I know very little about quite a lot, and I can survive and thrive because I know lots of people like Andrew who do 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 stuff. <laughs> it's all about it's all about positive partnerships at the end of the day. Isn't exactly, it? Yeah. exactly. Yeah. But the uh, the the other bit about Experience Bank Group, which is the doing good, if you like, the philanthropic thing. So so actually the Experience Bank Group commercially, its commercial activities are built around a core initiative called the Experience Bank, which is philanthropic by deliberate nature. And that's a curated network of people like Andrew. We've got about 200 people in the bank now. 
who all sign up to its values and all are happy to support very early stage founding entrepreneurs when they are trying to, generally they're trying to become investor ready. So they need a bit of help with the, the business plan and commercializing their business, making themselves attractive to angel investors or funders. And, you know, these people need that level of knowledge and you know scars and medals if you like at the time when they probably know very few people like that and i recognized that a good few years ago now and decided to uh, do something about that so we connect these very early stage entrepreneurs with with members of the experience bank and they effectively form little advisory boards which is invaluable when they are uh, as i said presenting themselves to investors and that's completely philanthropic the commercial activities of Experience Bank Group gift 5% of its revenue to the social enterprise, the Experience Bank, so it has a bit of a budget for PR and marketing and that kind of stuff. But otherwise, it's got no commercial agenda. Nice. Well done for the positive. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, and I guess one of the founding reasons that we wanted to get you guys on the call was um, obviously to learn a little bit more about your thoughts of the COVID impact. Like, it's been a very tough, um, it's around about 17 months now for a lot of businesses and individuals. It's affected us in a variety of different ways. From your own experiences, firstly, how's um, the last 17 or so months been for, for you specifically? Nothing for me has changed really, because if you, if you look at the four things that I do, all of them lend themselves very neatly to, to, to virtual, to being able to be virtual, to be distant, I was very lucky in the, in the side that, you know, my non-exec work continued, the Vistage groups continued, we went online, we've got more creative with, with the way that we delivered the, the peer groups. The stuff I did with the Experience Bank went online, we were more creative with the way we did that. The private work, you know, uh, sort of carried on in the same. But what it actually did for me uh, was actually it stress-tested a number of assumptions I was personally making on my operational model. So, for example, I do a lot of coaching, you know, one-to-one -one coaching with chief execs and business owners. And, and for quite a while, my personal belief was that I had to see people face-to-face. -face. I had to be with them in the room, in their environment, to really sort of get a, get a good connection and get the conversation going. COVID forced us that we couldn't do that. But the quality of the discussion, the quality of the outcome, in the eyes of the, you know, the, the coachees, did not go down it stayed the same or went, or went better because it was more flexible, it was easier, there was no travel. For me personally, anyway, it just enabled me to get rid of some falsisms, assumptions that I'd created to myself that just weren't relevant, that just weren't real because I'd never tested them before. But from a, a work point of view, it's, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to say that uh, it, it continued and uh, stress levels in, in the different work environments, different sectors, obviously sort of peaked depending on which sector I was involved with. But, uh, but overall, it's, uh, it, it's been a very, very tough, but, uh, but continued the same. I would share that view, actually. I think, first and foremost, the arrival of COVID provided, without any planning at all, really, an opportunity to scratch the entrepreneurial itch I've had for some time. So I've spent years and years and years working with and for entrepreneurs, not really been particularly entrepreneurial myself. So um, it presents an opportunity to, to do that. It was fairly low risk 
because I'm actually only doing what I've done for 25 years, except it's my name above the door rather than someone else's now. And I think because I'd got an established network of clients, uh, whilst the shutters came down on senior level recruitment, as soon as the pandemic arrived, they very quickly came back up again when everyone sort of realized, okay, this is what it looks like now, but we still need to do stuff. From a, a, a busyness perspective, it's been good, actually. I, I found that the move to online has actually made me a lot more productive than I used to be. There's no substitute, of course. When I deal with people, my, I trade in people, so there's never going to be any substitute for actually meeting people and getting to know them. But I think once you've met them, maintaining that relationship and certainly managing a process of introductions to clients, et cetera, it's way more efficient online. Yeah, I'm fully embracing the hybrid way moving forwards. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's true. It's, like, it's kind of, it almost became as a, a crisis of leadership to begin with because there was no real understanding of how to deal with the um, deal with COVID from the very beginning, but equally at the same time, that entrepreneurial spirit has kind of shone through and it's, it's forced people to do things that they kind of wanted to do in the long term, but kind of just never really had the impetus to kind of push and journey on. And um, at the other side of it, it's, yeah, it's created a lot of partnerships and utilizing technologies to help businesses work in a much more agile and beneficial way. And collaborative. And a, yeah, definitely collaborative yeah, as well. Very much so. One of the things that I'm interested as well in learning a little bit more about is you obviously speak to a lot of different um, execs and CEOs through your, your day-to-day contacts. Kind of what from your learnings has been some of their biggest challenges and the major kind of insight that you would have been able to take away for the past, from the past 17 months? Um, you know, what, what are you getting fed back from your end? I, I actually put it, and you'll probably get, get familiar with the style I look at that, you know, I, I, I put them into stages, you know, phases of the process. So if you look at the very early stages, I was actually in Sri Lanka when the announcements were coming out of this lockdown. I couldn't believe when people were following me up and texting me to tell me to bring home some toilet rolls. Just didn't resonate with me as to what was going on through that process. Stage one, everybody went through survive crisis mode. Oh shit. We've got to get out. We've got to get remote. We've got to get virtual. And quite a few of my members actually said that survive mode brought the organization closer together because everybody had the same principle. It brought decision-making faster and more agile than they'd ever seen before. And one or two actually said it it turned their transformation, their their digital transformation programs ahead by 24 months at least. So it really just, this survival activity just forced a lot of pace. So that was the first thing that a lot of people went through. And through that process, there was all sorts of questions because nobody had heard of the furlough scheme at that point. Siebel's hadn't even been invented and these things have started to slowly come out. Everybody was grasping for knowledge. I'm, I'm trying to survive day to day, but now there's some stuff coming out to help and I now need to understand. So there was a survive with learning piece coming, coming alongside. And then it moved into, into the, the next key stage of activity for me, which was consolidate. And consolidate suggests a flat line of, of, of activity, but actually consolidate was a bit up and down, especially with all the changes. You know, we, we were opened up in September, weren't we? Then we got locked down again just after Christmas, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But we were in a consolidate period. Everybody just got used to it. 
the biggest bugbear I heard from everybody was the fight over the Wi-Fi in the house because you have, you know, you have the parents trying to do their work on the dining room table, the kids trying to do the homeschooling, you know, the Wi-Fi, the games, etc., was going going through the roof. But everybody just got used to it. You know, we all got used to not going out. We all got used to not seeing people and doing creative things like, you know, Zoom quizzes and karaoke and everything else that was going on in the thing. We just got used to it. It was just consolidation of we are where we are. Yeah. But actually, businesses still operated. And what a lot of what a lot of companies realized from the survive piece was actually this is okay. We can live through this. We can work hybrid. The, the old-fashioned leaders who expected you in nine to five now got the head around the fact that actually I can monitor performance through all my analytics and through the data, and as you said, Peter, and that, you know, through the technology stuff. So people just got used to it. Where we saw a few wobbles was when people were uncertain as to are we coming out the other end or not? What are the rules for companies being able to open up again? And there's still a lot of confusion in that as it stands. And you've got to give the UK government, I think, a lot of credit for what they did because they were learning on the hop as well. You know, there is no set formula for, for a pandemic because we've never really had one in our living memory as we go through. So so the, the speed upon their learning as well, you know, they're not going to get everything right, are we? Just like a lot of businesses never got a lot of things right. It's the speed upon which you learn and change and move it on. Uh, and where I think we are now, and there's a lot of people coining the frame of new norm and all of these sorts of buzzwords coming around. Actually, there isn't a new norm. It is just the consolidation carried forward in the fact that we can now choose whether we go hybrid. We can choose whether to have a meeting in, in person or not, because COVID and the likes is going to be with us now, from it, as far as I'm concerned, now forever and a day. It's going to carry on until we... Uh, we find the cure to get rid of it. So we've just got to live with it. So we're coming out now. I think we're more in the thrive mode. If you think about a life cycle, we've got the consolidation out of the way. I think we'll have a massive blip in July, August, because everybody will try and get away on holiday. So we'll have a bit of a productivity dip, I think, in that summer period. Uh, but afterwards, I think we're into, right, let's just get on with it. So let's, let's start thriving. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely true that businesses through their change in enforced mechanisms of how they operate is, is definitely push businesses forward. But I still do think that we're still, sadly, there's two parts, um, some of which are kind of wanting to do a reset in how industry operates and others, you know, you mentioned about the norm and you hear terms like build back better and things like that. But I think where we are with COVID, it's, it's not about returning to norm. It's not about like going back to how we did things in the past. It's about actually almost pressing that reset button and changing our practices to work in a lot more, in a, in a smarter way. Um, we've got so much at hand nowadays um, where we are from a technological um, standpoint that we didn't have in industry. And if you look back to like five, 10 years ago, that it now makes it easier to kind of operate on a much more leaner perspective so I'm, I'm interested to see how businesses do evolve and continue to take the learnings that they had through the kind of period of enforced lockdown and slowly kind of come out to see where they um, where they want to shift their businesses to going forward because yeah I think there's, there's loads of opportunity you know you mentioned about who your, some of your clients are and you you don't you know we're not restricted by region anymore we can work with whoever whenever and that's that's ultimately how we build. I mean, I was I was chatting to a friend of mine the other day who works in education, um, higher high, high education, 
And they were saying they're already looking at their model of delivery to move exclusively to a hybrid worker model so that they can increase the capacity of learners within their institutions so that they can get a, they're using it as an opportunity. They know it works now. They've, they've tested it. And you've gone through that consolidation period in terms of learning, particularly for higher education and international students. Do they have to be here? Probably not. You know, can we move that international model to, to, a, to a kind of without the locality? And they're, they're testing all that now. So they're using, I think, this summer, as you were saying, like the July, August time before the, the learners come back in September, or if they even come back, to use that as a model to look at a completely new business approach to the to how they deliver education in 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 higher education so which is mega interesting in terms of what what is then the future learners that then become employees expect from their employers moving forward i think there's a there's something else that happened during lockdown that sits alongside the strategic thinking that's now going on as we have used just been saying and that's down at an individual level, an individual leadership level. What I found throughout the whole of the lockdown last year was that people running businesses were really pleased to have a kind of quick online catch-up with someone like me that wasn't talking about their specific business, operational day-to-day issues, that was more interested in, in how they were and how they were coping with it. That was really valued. And, and of course the appreciation of having good non-exec directors or advisors to the board came to the fore. People that you can just sound off to or seek reassurance from or get a bit of rigor around some decision-making. And, of course, it is the age of peer groups, I think, now. They are incredibly valuable anyway, but in times of crisis, they come into their own. I mean, Andrew knows a lot more about peer groups than I do, but uh, the investment people are taking in their in themselves and their leadership ability and their own mindfulness and welfare alongside the, the sort of strategic thinking, I, I think is here to stay. I, at least I hope it is because it's it's yeah. far more positive. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, I reflect back in, you know, when I said that survive mode where everybody had to come together, there was two things happening in that. One was we just got to get stuff done so that we can continue to operate and, and be as we are. And one of the things that I found with talking to a lot of my members and clients was everybody was scrappling around for the same data uh, and the same information and same advice. And I just said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll set up a call on a Monday. We'll call it a COVID Cobra call. Anybody can turn up to it. You don't have to be a member or a client of mine. It's free. And I'll just get the British Business Bank there. I will get a HR lawyer there. I will get whoever questions we've got this week to stop everybody wasting some time and to get the answers from the experts. And, and I did that for about four or five months, sort of through the process, just so we stop people wasting time trying to find the answers, you know, that probably weren't readily available because it takes time for websites to get updated and the, and the data is changing. But that, for me, then created, I saw a dynamic shift in the way people wanted to collaborate. There was no, no, no longer competition, per se. It was like, we all just want to survive. You know, we all just want to, want to make, you know, get, get through it. And, and that, for me, has continued. And I was brought up years ago. There's a, it was actually one of my Vistage members reminded me of this. was never waste a good crisis, was his, was his statement. That, that was his catchphrase. And if you look at it, actually, this has all been a crisis. So if you, if you haven't been testing your assumptions of your business model, if you haven't 
really sort of really looked at how you do things and how you can exploit technology and partnerships in a different way, they're the firms that are going to struggle moving forwards. The firms that think, oh, we're now out of lockdown come the end of June, therefore we can go back to the old model, they're the ones I think that will really struggle in the, in the thrive piece. The people who've really shook the tree and said, actually, how can we deliver this differently? How can we actually operate differently? Uh, are the ones that can really sort of add and have some value and they haven't wasted a crisis. They've done some stuff differently and you keep the good stuff. And it was interesting you talked about education. I, I sit on the Durham MBA program as one of the nasty Neds that come in. They have to pass a boardroom exercise as part of the MBA. Um, and I'm one of the nasty Neds that comes in to give them a give them a, a going over at the board meeting. All of that completely went digital. The way the papers were circulated, the way the way the whole thing was done, you know. So so you're seeing it all the time, more and more and more. You know, I don't think I've actually held any physical money for about eighteen months. Because <laughs> the post's been shut. <laughs> you know, I, I was on holiday last week, uh, very close to a designer outlet centre, which you can imagine the the attraction of going and getting a, a nice pair of Levi jeans or something. And um, I've put on some COVID timber as the uh, as the as, as the uh, thing is, so they were quite a bigger size than I would normally get. And uh, you know, I just never use cash. You know, who would have thought? You know, we'd be a cashless society. You know, it's just everybody. Everybody has just got to get used to these. To these different things, and I, I, I do think you know, cashless society will just continue. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you. Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
I think it's it's true in the fact that how things aren't changing so much, and also it's 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 how people are looking at business. It's it's now looking beyond the P, looking beyond the profit, looking beyond the simplistic monetary terms, but actually looking more in depth in in surrounding like value. What value are you getting from interactions, partnerships? The university things are really interesting piece to me because if you kind of look at tuition fees and how kind of that's happened throughout the pandemic and are they truly getting value for money? It's, it's, a, it's a really prying question for the, for the industry as a whole because you raised a great point before saying that like international students, like not only do they pay a premium um, to come and study from uh, here, there and wherever, but equally are they getting value for that investment? And I think if you kind of see things going forward, you'll probably see more online like programs taking place, more shorts courses more focused courses and it returns to the whole viewpoint about value like what are you getting for an investment in your time really i think for me the, the talk of like value outside of the monetary term of value is about what organizations can give not just back to their customers but back to their community and i think that's been very much exacerbated and highlighted throughout the last 12 to 18 months and looking at what you were saying before, Peter, around kind of bringing communities together, bringing kind of your business community together or your network or the, the wider community. And, and I'd be interested to get your views on kind of, is that something that's here to stay? Is it something that you think, what, what's the impact that businesses could or can have in the future around kind of their own communities? Yeah, it is interesting. So the Experience Bank, the social enterprise at the moment, is helping a lady called Michelle Jones set up her business called Kind Currency. That's purely born out of recognizing that there are a lot of kind people in the community, but perhaps are disadvantaged. They've got barriers in front of them. They're in poverty or whatever. But they are, they are and have done throughout the pandemic – demonstrated huge kindness in supporting their neighbor or a relative or just a person you know, that they've come across who's helping them. So, so Michelle's decided to try and uh, establish a business. Uh, it's a tech-enabled business that connects conscious consumers with ethical local businesses. And she's de- developing an app to, to do this. It's a subscription model. But basically, as a consumer, you subscribe to the app and that money then gets put into the kindness fund, which then gets distributed to these kind people in the community. That really quite a simple model, but if you ever if you spoke to Michelle, you'd see it, it comes from deep within her, and she's incredibly committed to it. Uh, and that resonated with some of the members of the Experience Bank, and I think she's now busy assembling an advisory board to help her get this app funded and uh, built, which would be. We're fantastic. I would like to think that we will see more people like Michelle thinking about that and then more people like those members of the Experience Bank being prepared to support it with their time, not necessarily their money, although some might invest, but mainly with their time and expertise and just sharing, sharing that knowledge for the benefit of, of the wider community. Great example. Yeah, it is. And it, uh, that's an unfortunate example as well of where the wrong advice was given to an early stage business on how to set up legally and she's now having to unpick it to deliver the strategy that she's got. Anyway, that's a different story. The bit for me, I, I just want to tweak one word that you use, you use value. 
and I, I don't think it's value anymore. I think it's values. That, and I think that's what you were trying to say as well. It's it's about the values. You know, what do you stand for? What are you trying to do? And because of COVID, a lot of people have had time to think about these things. They've looked at what's going on out there. You know, you've got things like the UN 17 sustainability goals that, that's mm-hmm. out there. Um, you've got investors in communities, sort of accreditation and agendas that's going on there. For, for me, it is about linking it back to well, what are we giving back? What are we doing? What's our purpose? How do we link to all of these sort of sectors and, and these activities? And that's what people are attracted to. You know, if 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 you want to work for a company that's socially responsible, that that low on carbon emissions, is doing all the right sort of things. As a company, you won't you won't have to advertise because you'll naturally attract people who've got the same value set that you've got. So it should make it, you know, a lot easier, more business sense. And, and I'm seeing it quite a lot actually in investor investor demands, investor reports in in companies in companies' materials where we're all striving. You, if you just look in the in the um, in the press and what's coming on in the news, you know, about changing changing use of plastics and you know the environmental stuff. All of that is going to drive in it as well. Um, I'm chair of a company that does some real-time monitoring, uh, environmental monitoring. We've actually been able to show how much energy and how much water people have been saving because they shut the building. They couldn't believe the numbers because they just assumed it was a gas bill or an electric bill or whatever else. We're actually showing them the impact and the environmental sort of side. That, that's all in there. So I think that more than value for money is going to is going to play a bigger role. The, the value for money piece is: does it link to my values? Is it delivering what I what I would like to get? Mixed with what is the most effective way of getting that product or service out? And then the bigger question, the bigger issue you've got now is: what's the definition of community? It's very easily in the probably post uh, pre COVID, we'd probably say. You know, I would say Northumberland because that's where I live. Or is it the, lo- the local village near Annick? Or is it the Northeast? Or is it the UK? Or is it Europe or whatever? The definition has now completely changed because of what you said. Technology has now made it. I think it's it's ultimately up to, you know, the, the values piece is, is 100% true. That's like one of the founding reasons why we started Purpose Made, because we believe there's more than just simple business there. It's about actually what else do you provide? Like what is beyond the profit? What's beyond the P? But if you kind of look also at mechanisms that are available now to kind of almost hold businesses to account. So you take a look at the likes of B Corp, which is a certification to kind of allow for the monitoring of um, their practices, et cetera. Or you take a look at some pieces where companies are creating new community engagement practices or processes. Like, because nowadays people are looking more beyond the simple statements. Like it's very easy to greenwash and say, oh, this is what we're doing. But it's like, what are you really doing? Like, People are getting asked that subsequent second question, and they're panicking. And if they're if they're like not understanding about the importance of their almost business footprint that you have, take a look at the Pride Rainbow, for example. At the moment, like a lot of businesses now are being challenged upon upon their logos, like what are you doing? What, like you've, you've put that logo up. Fantastic. What, what's beyond that? What are you actually like? Tell me your practices that you actually implemented in your company that supports pride. What, what, what are your true beliefs? People are going to struggle, especially people that have never been asked that question before. Like 
where do you stand on a certain issue? Because where we are at the moment, like there's, there's a great report out there, like an Elderman report that, that was released earlier this year that talks about a loss of trust in um, society. So, you know, like governments throughout the world have lost trust and it's up to CEOs to kind of step up and be that trusted arbiter to support community and support society going forward. So if they're going to be looked upon as the mechanisms for trust, honesty and commitment, like show us, like show us what you're doing. Yeah, I I think uh, private companies have an opportunity to learn from the charitable world. And there, I mean, obviously charities for years now, or the good ones anyway, have worked very hard to publish uh, an impact report frequently, usually with the annual report, I guess. It would be good to see something similar, I think, in the private sector. Uh, what is the impact of our business beyond just the bottom line? I mean, you know, the, uh, the days of the annual company walk for charity are long gone, I think, in that respect. Well, I think, I think um, that does exist actually now, Peter. So if you're in a PLC, if you're listed, there are some demands on for you to state in your company accounts. Um, yeah. ESG is the buzzword. Environment, yeah. sustainability and governance is the, uh, is, is the sort of buzzword thing. So people are doing it now. I think the, the difference now is, is the evidence. Show us the evidence. All right. It's great that you tell us that you, you're reducing carbon emissions or that you've got a, a positive supply chain that, you, that you're creating and giving more back to the, to the farmers, for example, in coffee or, or tea or wherever. But prove it to us. Where's the data? Who independently has verified it? And, and I'm, I'm seeing more and more of these accreditation bodies coming out. So I do think that's going to be that's going to be with us. But I think it will force its way, you know, force its way through. Clearly, the other big debate is is diversity that, that's out there. You know, values again linked back to it. You know, I'm very passionate in the, the work I do and the groups that I work with. It's about diversity of thought is is the really important thing. Diversity of, per, of perceptions and views and and things. And the more you can get the richer the options you're going you're gonna to have in front of you. You know, the more siloed, the more insular that you, you are, the less rich, because it could just be the institutional thing. So I think what, what has changed as well through the COVID process is people have worked out, actually, I need diversity of thought, please, because it is lonely being a CEO in a business where I'm trying to survive. I've got livelihoods. I've got a community to look after. I've got this, that, and the other. I feel like I'm the only one, all the weight of the world is on my shoulders from time to time. But now getting together with, as you said earlier, Peter, about the power of peer groups actually comes to its fore because that you get that perception. So I think all of those things tied together will just be a natural, they will just continue, there'll be more and more demands. And what, what will happen? Just look at what, um, as a practical example of the values piece, actually, on top of Peter's, you look at the recruitment crisis that hospitality now faces. Hospitality can't fill the post that it's now got. So half the pubs and restaurants can't even open now because there's nobody there. And, and I don't know if you remember um, the, the uh, Weatherspoons. I don't know if you saw the publicity there. Apologies if I get some of the facts wrong, but it's just my recollection. The day that uh, this all sort of kicked off, they sacked the, their team. They said that you can all leave. You're, you're all being paid off. We're not going to do furlough. We're not going to follow any of that. You're all sacked. Why now, when, the, when it's coming back, would anybody want to go back and work there? 
the value space is just misaligned. It's just not there. And, that, and that's what people remember. And they've now got a job at Deliveroo or they've got a job at Amazon or they've got, they've got a job somewhere else that's far better paid or, or locked after. Even though we might not think they're, they're, they're paying conditions from the press are at where you need it to be, it's a lot better than that. That's a great example because if you take a look at where that chap is at the moment, he's starting to suggest the need for more foreign workers to come and help him out in his pubs after being quite a prominent Brexiteer. That's a whole new kettle of fish, but we're not going to talk about the B word in this one. But it's it's difficult. And, you know, the the thing that we're seeing now as well is your, your customers, they're, they're becoming your true stakeholders. They're becoming your true, like, you know, boards essentially because – Whilst historically he might have had to feed his profits and um, revenue through to board members to kind of give an overview of how well the business is doing, like it doesn't matter. Reputation will eat your business for breakfast if you get it wrong. So people make conscious decisions to move away from things that they don't think matches and mirrors their own values and beliefs. So it's a very challenging um, thing to follow really strong argument for having proper board diversity if your board your board to be properly effective needs to be representative of your customer base and your stakeholders and so few are uh, in reality there's a lot a lot of groupthink i've found that that's the biggest win for me of bringing in some cognitive diversity into your boardroom you know, it gets more representative of the people to whom you're selling your services to who experience your trade your your products your service yeah there's a big myth actually that i come across quite a lot which is um my board needs to be made up of people who understand the sector or the market you know it, it, it just really winds me up it's like that's like having a dog and barking, barking yourself you know it's like you're the exec. You're supposed to know what the industry is all about. You, you, what you need are people that are holding you to account, so the scrutiny part, but people that can help and challenge and, and, and create wider and better strategies. And actually, I sit on a lot of boards where I'm not I'm not an expert in the industry, but I know how to engage and what a good board looks like and the, and the good debate discussions. I'm, I'm able to ask the five-year-old question, you know, the, what considered to be a daft question, and why the hell are we doing this then? How, how does this make sense? Uh, etc you know which a lot of people sort of sort of fail on and uh, uh, so you're absolutely right Peter I think it's again it just comes back to me about diversity of, uh, of, of thought and diversity of perception is is really what we've all found and you know I think the biggest challenge that everybody has is is the well-being challenge actually we've all experienced we talk about the community in itself but you've got to look after yourself first and you know, there's been a whole series of discussions about personal well-being and mental health through all this crisis and people, you know, people needing to see each other. And, and the extroverts of this world are missing the uh, – they were probably the first ones in the pub, giving everybody a hug the other week, buying a pint and the introverts. So I live in Northumberland, so I'm, I've been self-isolating for years. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not been a problem, but you can sort of see that that sort of well, well-being thing is, is now – for me, is, is a big, big agenda item. And so coming out of COVID and, and, and linked to the environmental and sustainability and the values piece, it's do you care about me? And not just me, the team I'm in, the wider organisation, the supply chain that we're a part of, the wider communities that that supply chain is in, do you care enough? 
And I think that's gonna it's gonna have such an impact on recruitment and and getting the right people into your organization. Can you look at your I suppose your employer brand and are you articulating enough to your potential recruits and employees that you are a a a purpose-driven, value-based organization who has your well-being at heart. And I think that is absolutely spot on. And I've done loads of work over the last two or three years on well-being and supporting organizations with well-being who, say, three years ago, were looking at that tipping point between it was very much lip service, it wasn't really embedded, it was there was no real like strategic approach to well-being it was just we'll put a mental health first aider in there and that's a box ticked you know that and that I, I saw a lot of companies doing that the investment i'm now saying because i've got a, a bit of a reputation for being kind of a bit of a well a well-being champion they're coming to me and saying what do we need to do how can we do it and it's it's looking at every facet of well-being it's not just five pillars of well-being it's not just looking at kind of you know once you cross the threshold of your of your workplace then i'm going to look after you it's looking at the whole piece and being able to support them in their whole lives because ultimately there's no distinction between the individual who lives at home and but also comes to work they're, they're one and the same person and i think in the past employees employers have been guilty of treating them as two separate individuals so one person, the individual outside of work, and the individual, I'm not accountable for the person that's outside of work. I'm only accountable for the person when they're in the in the office. And I think that's so untrue now. And well, I think you, we're seeing a lot see more. You quite a lot of the legal stuff where people are posting personal things on, you know, on Facebook or on, on Twitter. The, you know, they, those things are having a consequence back internally to, to places of work. I mean, you know, the Paul had with the cricket, you know, as, a, as an example, you know, where the digital world has a memory. No longer can you just say things flippantly online or, or, or across the digital platforms. It, it can, it will come back and surface up, and, that, and that's why I think you know companies have to be you know more consistent with it. That, that's another positive outcome from the from COVID as well. Just like the advancement of technology accelerating so rapidly, the working from home thing and the welfare, the mental welfare of everyone has got it firmly front of mind for everyone and it's not going anywhere. Yeah. And if you look at the a basic business principle, you know, a pyramid of the business, you've got the pounds, shillings and pence up here, the profitability, which is where a lot of people's and board's attentions used to be is, how profitable are we? Where's the revenue coming from? Is the business plan on track or not? You have your customers over here and you've got your staff over here. That was the typical way that people used to look at the business. Well, if you just turn that dial slightly and go, we'll focus on our people first because they will naturally look after our customers and our customers then will actually naturally bring in the pounds, shillings and pence on our behalf. You've now got a different business model, but all you've done is just looked at the same three pillars in a slightly different lens. And that's what, that's what for me, COVID has, has enabled us to do. You then look at the skills-based, skills, based, skills uh, talent base that we have. It's, again, it's going to be a slightly different one to the, to the old models. So again, we've got, to, we've got to, you know, look at how we build that um, talent pool that we've got available for us. And those are all bigger macro types of challenges that I think the governments are going to have to face. You know, look at the problems G7 are having to try and get a tax deal on on the big tech firms, you know, and, and, and the debate around taxing those big firms compared to firms that are on the high street. Yeah. We're now into a completely different world and the rules need to catch up. 
Um, yeah, the tax element is an interesting piece because if we take a just a brief look at tax, um, historically it was a very you know monotonous process. But like now, if you kind of look at it, there's been nine COVID billionaires created during the pandemic, and from those nine, you can kind of look at it and go, well. Is it really right for people to profit off a pandemic? I don't think so. And, you know, people are going to scrutinize how, how people's individual wealth has been created. And then equally on a, on a higher level, as we work more in a global economy, the whole premise of, you know, corporation tax at a national level is, is going to evolve and change. So I know they just recently agreed, agreed on the 15%, but you know, that's, that's just a baseline. There will be more tax coming and it'll be more focused on where, where the wealth is created and, and ultimately to ensure that that goes back into society whereby roads, infrastructure, et cetera, is developed upon. So it's nice to see, but I think there's still a lot more to go and do with respect to taxation. Yeah, no, yeah, it, that will change. Um, it will evolve. But the problem is with law, it is always 10 years behind the reality of how we live and because of the speed of debate and change and, and, and the sort of systems. And, you know, I do strongly believe that coming out of COVID and in, in, um, sort of moving forwards, a lot of people's business models now will have pivoted already. You know, not every sector suffered during COVID, let's not, you know, as you say, there's been loads of billionaires created. The technology sector didn't falter. It, you know, it went through the roof. But there are some sectors that really sort of fell down, particularly around some of the service sector type stuff. And the question I always pose there is, that was never a sustainable business because be, just because when things are good, it's a good business to have and you can, and you can do things off the side of it. How do we make more sustainable businesses? is the challenge for the CEO moving forwards. How do we make them more sustainable so that we can employ as many people as we possibly can, or do we want to, to go through it? That's the challenge for the chief execs moving forwards. Some would argue that's always been the case, but I think even more now because we've seen what happened. You know, we don't have excuses anymore to use technology. We don't have excuses anymore to not collaborate, to not get diversity of thought, to not pay our way and do do the things that are right. There are no excuses anymore. So it's the chief execs that grab all that and go, you know what, this is how we are going to be sustainable. They're the ones who will, who will win longer term. Or at least the chief execs enabled by a proper board. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think from from my perspective, that's a really good place to kind of wrap things up, like looking at that sustainability, making sure that we're creating businesses that are sustainable for the future. So at that point, I think we'll just uh, say a massive thank you for your time. Yeah, um, you really so enjoyed that. Some great points. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Good stuff. Anytime. This podcast was brought to you by Purpose Made a strategic change consultancy supporting people and business to navigate the post-pandemic global society. This is what transformational change sounds like. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe and we'll see you again for the next episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365 day returns.